Good evening. So welcome to our class on uh, Parashat Shabbat. We're learning uh, a sikha from the Rebbe. Um, it's good to be back. And uh, this week, we're going to do something that we're probably already familiar with. You know, usually when, uh, when, when a rabbi gives a class, you find some question on the parsha, have a few stories, get an answer, and that's pretty much it. But um, every, every time the Rebbe had a Fabrengan, the Rebbe would study Rashi. Now, it's important to realize that there's something very unique about this type of study. So it wasn't just that the Rebbe had a question on the parsha, something didn't make sense, there was some type of contradiction, and we're going to find some way to work through the contradiction or work through the question. Here, the Rebbe is learning the parsha, and together with the parsha, the, the, we're learning Rashi. Rashi is the most uh, important commentator on the Torah. And it's also important to realize that to an extent, Rashi is the voice of the simple meaning of the Torah. In other words, a five-year-old child, that's how he needs to learn Torah. So if Rashi explains something, that means that the five-year-old is not able to understand it without Rashi. That means without Rashi coming to the rescue, the five-year-old is going to be confused. The five-year-old is not going to know what to do with himself. Right? Now you'll think, what does it take to teach a five-year-old? Right? Know the story. Well, move on in life. But when you'll start to... I think over the past few years, we've gone through this several times. You'll notice that teaching a five-year-old and ensuring that the five-year-old understands the Torah the way the five-year-old needs to understand it is far from simple. In fact, my grandfather would have this... Uh, you know, he, he would always say, you know, in 1964, the Rebbe started this whole study of Rashi. And, and really, um, let's put it this way, the Rebbe's not the first one to study Rashi in depth. There is dozens, dozens of commentaries on Rashi. There's entire books that are dedicated to understanding Rashi. However, the Rebbe was so unique in understanding Rashi with the insistence that Rashi is talking to the Bible. Okay. That's, it's a concept that comes up all the time in the Rebbe's analysis of Rashi. So my grandfather would always say, he said, you know, Chassidim asked themselves, which five-year-old is learning Rashi like this? So you got to say it's probably the Rebbe. When the Rebbe was five years old, that's how he understood Rashi. Anyway, that's just how Chassidim would, uh, that's how they explained it to themselves. But, um, so today what we're going to do is, um, we're going to be reading a, a part of the parasha, uh, the beginning of our parasha, which talks about a very bad, dark period of the Jewish people, the beginning of the of the exile in Egypt. And we're going to learn Rashi, and seemingly a Rashi that's quite simple, straightforward. And the Rebbe is going to explain to us how it's not so simple. And we have to appreciate and understand what Rashi is, what the gift of Rashi on this section of the Torah. And uh, we'll probably walk away with a very important lesson or a better appreciation for what the parasha is trying to tell us. Alrighty, so let's go straight into the parsha. Um, the, the, this is the second book of the Torah. Last week we learned that Yaakov, I mean, the Jewish people are now all settled in, in Egypt. They're away from the Holy Land, they're not in Israel. Um, this was actually foretold by God to Abraham that eventually his children, his descendants, will be strangers in a foreign land. They're going to have a tough time there. And last week Yaakov passed away, Yosef passed away, and now the Jewish people are basically leaderless. They, they, don't, they don't have a, you know, there's Yaakov and there's Yosef, but then they're pretty much in Egypt 
And uh, source number one, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. He said to his people, now what does it mean he did not know about Joseph? I mean, Joseph was, uh, you know, it's like saying, you know, the president of the United States became president, didn't even know about a guy named George Washington. I cannot know about George Washington if you're an American citizen, right? In order to become a citizen, you have to know about George Washington. Joseph was a person that literally saved Egypt from a famine, and he was—he uh, didn't just—he uh, didn't just rule for nine years. He ruled for close to eighty years. He was a king in Egypt, right? About eighty years, he was a king in Egypt. And all of a sudden, a new king comes. He doesn't know Joseph. So <laughs> Rashi explains, he made. He made as if he didn't know Joseph. He conveniently forgot about Joseph because if he would have remembered Joseph, it would be impossible for him to persecute Joseph's family. He said to his people, the nation of the children of Israel are more numerous and stronger than we are. Get ready. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they increase. And when a war befalls us, they will join our enemies and wage war against us and depart from the land. Engaging in the typical anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that, uh, you know, he's just hyping everyone up. What? They were, they, were, they were not working for the media at all, yet. The Jewish people had settled in Goisha, which was a separate area. Uh, in fact, the Medrash tells us that during this, after Yosef passed away, the, the Israelites were very eager to prove their uh, patriotism to Egypt, and they fought alongside the Egyptians in many war in several wars. Uh, they helped the Egyptians be victorious. And this is like typical, like the Jews fought on the German side in World War One, and then what happened a few years later, right? They hyped everyone up against the Jews, and uh, that was that. So this is the same thing. The Pharaoh was a Hitler, plain and simple. It was a straight up Hitler. So just like Hitler engaged in. Uh, a lot of lies and a lot of uh, smoke and mirror and, and all that type of stuff. This pharaoh was doing the exact same thing. By the way, nothing's new. <laughs> all the all nothing is new. All the huh? By the way, there's even an argument whether it was a new pharaoh or not. The point is, you can never trust. The but it had to be. Had to be a new pharaoh. Why did it have to be a new pharaoh? Why does it have to be a new pharaoh? I mean, uh, about, let's put it this way. It is a discussion. Rav and Shmuel, one of them says that it was a new pharaoh. One of them says uh, he just made himself new. He rebranded himself. New ideas. New ideas. That's, that's how one of the Talmudic sages puts it. He had new ideas. He had new ways of dealing with it. He had a viceroy Joseph for 80 years. Once he got rid of, once Joseph died, and then, you know, he started to engage. He read Mein Kampf, I guess, and he decided he's rebranding himself as an ultra-nationalist Egyptian. That's pretty much what's going on over here. Um, you'll ask, uh, you know, he probably became old and he died. I mean, let's put it this way. In the biblical narrative, there are plenty of people that live for hundreds of years. Um, so it doesn't bother me one way or another if it was the same one or a different one. The fact of the matter is that the Jewish people were facing a pharaoh that either conveniently forgot about Joseph or, uh, I mean, he did. Huh? 
if, so, if, if someone was a king for 80 years in the country, there's no way you forgot about him. Let, let's not give him a pass. Pharaoh doesn't deserve any pass over here. All right. All righty. So he tells his people, he says, we have, to, we have to somehow stunt their population growth. That's pretty much what he's saying. He says, the problem is that there's too many of them. We have to stop them. So what, what, what was his first tactic to stop them? The best way to stop them from having more kids is by enslaving them. When people are enslaved, they have no freedom. They're not going to have kids or not large families. Almost. The Egyptians appointed tax collectors over the Israelites to afflict them with their burdens. And the Israelites built storage cities for Pharaoh, namely Pisim and Ramses. And so they were... Thank you. Um, so they, they kind of, they, they forced the Jews into slavery. That's a whole story for itself. Actually, a whole class for itself. We're not going to get into that. And so, and, and their purpose was in order to stunt the population growth. But as much as the Egyptians afflicted the Israelites, so did they multiply and so did they gain strength. And the Egyptians were disgusted with the, with the children of Israel. The Egyptians enslaved the Israelites with backbreaking labor. They embittered their lives with hard labor, with clay, with bricks, and with all kinds of labor in their fields, in the fields. All the work that they made them do was crushing labor. But as he says a little bit earlier, the more they tried to stunt the population growth, they just continued multiplying. Rashi says that the Israelite women um, were having babies every nine months. And guess how many they were having? Six every time. Six tuplets. You think twins are stuff? Triplets? Six. Six in every, in every birth. There's a cute story, actually, Morachai. I think you'll like this. Um, the chief rabbi of Israel, the, the previous chief rabbi of Israel, rabbi, rabbi Lau, now his son is the chief rabbi. So he was chief rabbi about 25 years ago, 20 years ago. So he was once in Cuba visiting uh, Mr. Castro, right? Comrade Castro. Is that what they called him that? Hmm. Anyway, um, I, I don't know what the visit was about, etc. He was chief rabbi of Israel. He's visiting the, the president of, of Cuba. And he writes in his book, he has a beautiful book. Uh, it's called... In Hebrew, it's in English, it's called Out of the Depths, I think. It's, very, it's a very nice book. In Hebrew and in English, they're both very nice. Anyway, so he writes over there that during this meeting, uh, the president, he, he, uh, he says, Rabbi, can I ask you a, bi a biblical question? He said, sure. So he said like this. It says in the Bible that when Jacob came down to Egypt, he came down with 70 members of his family, right? 70. And then 210 years later, when they left, they numbered 600,000. Those are the numbers that it says in the Torah. It says, I don't see how the math works out. How can you get from 70 to 600,000 in about 210 years? It was a good question. Now, the rabbi didn't want, didn't want to tell him that, by the way, the 600,000 was only men between 20 and 60. And, and by the way, 80% of the Jews died a few weeks yeah. earlier, right? So, yeah. like, you yeah, don't want to make the question bigger. He said, fine, fair question. So he told him. He said, uh, our sages tell us that, uh, you know, he, he, he brought to his attention this verse in the beginning of Exodus. It said that the more that they were enslaved and embittered, the more they multiplied. And so he said that our sages tell us that every single time a, a Jewish woman gave birth, she had six children. So Mr. Castro thought for a minute and said, okay, now, now it makes sense. <laughs> he was able to see if they're having six tuplets every single time that they're having a baby, so, by, you know, 210 years, it makes sense. If it was 70, you get to 600,000. We know the secret. It wasn't just the 600,000. By the time the Jewish people were ready to leave Egypt, 
before the plague of darkness, they had to have numbered at least 10 million people, if not more. At, at least. The amount, people that left was about two and a half, 600,000 men to 20 to 60, and they all have wives. What? Yeah, 11, 12 million, whatever. Whatever it might be. It was a lot. It was a lot of people. And it was, it was, it was a direct result. It was a direct reaction, a divine reaction to the persecution, to the enslavement, to the slavery, as the Egyptians wanted to stunt their population growth, they just multiplied. It was, it was just a population boom. Um, okay. So the first plan of how to stunt the population growth didn't work. It didn't work out for them. Right? The more they enslaved them, the more they made more crushing labor, the more babies they had. By the way, the whole concept of how they continued having children despite I mean, the, the Egyptians, they did everything they could to keep the men away from their, from their wives. They, they, the wives had to work and the men had to work all at different times. It was a, it was a real balagan. It was, it was, I mean, they completely disrupted family life. And the Talmud gives a very fascinating description of how the women did everything in their capacity to continue you know, the, the family life. Um, and it's, it's only due to their credit that the Jewish people continued to, uh, to grow and that another generation was born. And today we're going to learn about two specific women that it was specifically due to their credit that everything continued to go in that way. So in other words, we're faced with a situation where you have the entire, the, the, the government, the state is trying to crush an entire population and doing everything in their capacity to stop them from having more kids. And they have, they have to have kids. I mean, miracles are all miracles, but husband and wife have to be together in order for that to happen. So the women were going through tremendous self-sacrifice for this to happen now the pharaoh decided to try a different tactic his problem was the following his stargazers had told him that the redeemer of the jewish people will be born imminently it's going to be a male so he decided he's got to kill all jewish male babies he's got to nip this in the bud <laughs> see this was during the time when people thought that they can outsmart destiny. The stars say that uh, a, a redeemer will be born. There's a reason why I know about it, so I can stop it, right? So the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. He said, when you are delivering the Hebrew women on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Pharaoh was the typical, I don't know what to call them, typical murderer that wants to keep his hands clean, right? Instead of him going and killing all the baby boys, you know, if he's going to kill the baby boys, he's going to get you know. So what did he do? He took the midwives and he said, you're going to do my dirty work for me. What are you going to do? When the, when the women are delivering, if you see that it's a boy, kill the baby before the baby is actually you know, actually, before the, the mother could see the baby, he killed the baby. So it should seem as if it was a stillbirth. That was the idea. That was the idea. Um, nope. So Rashi, right away. So here, here's a story, very powerful story that's going on. We have these two midwives, Shifra and Pua. And Pharaoh is trying to intimidate them and force them to do his dirty work for them. Rashi, right away, takes issue with the names Shifra and Pua. She says there was no such thing. Two women named Shifra and Pua, that didn't exist. No, it wasn't really Shifra and Pua, it was two other ladies. This was, uh, how do you say, 
was professional names. These were, these were huh? work names. Exactly. They're professional names. Now she says, Shifra, this is your heaven. Who was your heaven? The mom of Moshe, right? Aaron and Miriam. So she was the mother of these three special people. Uh, she was also the daughter of Levi. She was born as the Jewish people entered Egypt, and she was the one that completed the number of ja Jacob's descendants, the seven. This is Yocheved. Who is Shifra? It's not just some, some woman named Shifra. No, this is Yocheved. Uh, why was she called Shifra? Well, why did she take on this professional name Shifra? Because she improved the newborn infant. Shifra has the same etymological you know, sound as Mishaperis. Mishaperis means to improve. So the, she improved the newborn infant by stretching out its limbs. The baby is born, you know, all... Uh, you know, straggly and whatever. So, you know, I, I think they do this till today. The baby is born and they kind of, you know, make sure everything is in the right place, etc. But it's Pua. Pua, this is Miriam. Miriam was the daughter of Yochevet. Why was she called Pua? Because she cooed. Pua in Hebrew means to coo, right? To, like to, uh, to speak to babies, right? The language of the little babies. Baby, like, you know, talk to anyone could do it, right? I guess she had a very special coup she, and, and talk to the newborn infant in the manner of women who soothe a crying infant. Right away, Rashi takes issue with the name Shifra and Pua. He says, no, no, no. This is, there, there was no some random two women who were midwives. There were Shifra and Pua. No, this is Yecheved, Miriam, and their professional names were Shifra and Pua. So what happened? Pharaoh had instructed them that they should kill the newborn babies males and the Torah tells us the midwives however feared God and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them and they kept the boys alive you think the king took that uh, easily the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them why have you done this thing allowing the boys to live their lives were in danger he wanted to kill them the midwife said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They have the skills of a midwife. Before the midwife has even arrived, they have already given birth. That's what they answered. And it worked. <laughs> Pharaoh didn't kill them. Pharaoh didn't kill them. Was it true? Of course it's true. Of course it's true. I mean... A lie wouldn't work. Pharaoh was able to figure out the truth. In other words, if Pharaoh accepted it, that means that was that was the truth. In fact, I was going to say later, how do you know that, that, that Pharaoh was able to figure it out? Later on in the story, Yocheved remarries, and she has a baby. Mo Amram divorced Yocheved, and then remarried her, and they have a baby, Moshe, Moshe, right? Moshe was born in his seventh month of pregnancy. How do we know that? Because the Torah says that she, she was able to hide him for three months. What's the idea? She was able to hide him for three months and she wasn't able to hide him. She had to put him out into the river it's because the, the Egyptians, they were able to basically, they had eyes and ears everywhere. They were able to chart Yocheved's period, literally. And, and they knew when she got pregnant and they knew when to expect her to give birth. Kind of like AI, you know, <laughs> artificial intelligence. These they knew everything. The Egyptians knew everything. 
So here, Pharaoh is expecting, the Rebbe is going to say this later on, but here, the Egypt, Pharaoh is saying, why didn't you kill the baby? And what, what is their answer? By the time we show up, the baby's alive, the baby's out. The baby's there. The baby's born. And Pharaoh accepted it. This itself is going to bring up another question, which we'll talk about in a moment. But let's continue here. God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. It was because the midwives feared God that he made houses for them. What does that mean? He built them a penthouse on the on top of the Nile, but built them some beach homes. All right, so let's read Rashi on this uh, on this whole situation, on the story. So on the response of the midwives to Pharaoh, they have the skills of a midwife. Rashi explains, this means that they are as skillful as midwives. In other words, they don't need, they don't need to have it. They don't need to have a midwife with them. Our rabbis, however, interpreted it to mean that they are compared to beasts of the field, which do not require midwives. Where are they compared to beasts? So in last week's parasha, we learned that Yaakov blessed his children, all of his 12 sons, and many of them are compared to beasts. For example, Judah is compared to a lion cub. Binyamin is compared to a wolf who devours. Joseph is compared to the firstborn of his ox. Naphtali is a swift gazelle. So you'll say, okay, so Yosef and Yehuda and Yamin and Naphtali, fine, they're the animals. What about the rest of them? And whoever was not compared to a beast as above was included by the scriptures and the expressions, and he blessed them. In other words, after he blessed each one separately, he also included all of them in each other's blessings. So everyone is compared to a lion cub and to a gazelle and everything else. Scripture states further, what is your mother a lioness? The, the, the Torah compares all of the Jewish people to a lioness. The point is that the Jewish people are compared to the beasts of the field who don't need to have a midwife. And that was their response to Pharaoh. Because they feared God and they did not listen to Pharaoh to kill the baby boys. So God was good to them and he made houses for them. What does this mean? He made houses for them. The houses of priesthood, the Levite family and the royal family. Who was Yocheved? Yocheved was the mother of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Now, Aaron was the first priest. He was the first Kayan. He was the first Kayan Gadol. And his descendants were the Kayan. So who is the matriarch of the Kohanic family, of the priestly family? Yocheved. Miriam married Kalev. Kalev was from the tribe of Judah. He was the leader, Caleb. He was the... Yeah, 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 he's got a long history with Caleb. So Miriam married Kalev, and from his descendants came who? King David. King David was the first of the Davidic dynasty of kings, of the Jewish kings. So who is the matriarch of the royal family of Judaism? Miriam. Miriam, right? Yeah, Ruth. But Miriam is... Uh... So now... <clears throat> These are called houses, as in the verse, if you built the house of the Lord and the house of the king, the priests and the Levite family came from Yechebed, and the royal family came from Miriam, as is stated in Tractate Soito. Fine. Beautiful story, huh? Tough, a bit traumatic, but it's all right. We can get over it. We're here to say the story. But now the Rebbe is going to analyze how Rashi explained the story to us. He's going to suggest that we could have understood the story more simply, more literally. And Rashi is kind of messing up with the literal with the literal translation of the words. So let's go to page six. 
In other words, what we're, what we're going to discover here from the Rebbe's analysis is that when Rashi says something, he's saying something. He's not just translating from Hebrew to English, from Hebrew to French, from Hebrew to Hebrew. He's not just translating. He's not just filling in issues. No, no, when he's saying something, he's, he's, he's forcing us to think. He's forcing our mind a little bit more broader, uh, to think a bit more broader. Okay, page six. At the beginning of the Torah portion, we read about the Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. Pharaoh instructed them when you are delivering the Hebrew women on the delivery stool, if you see the baby as a boy, kill them, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Nevertheless, the Torah tells us that the midwives, however, fear of God, and they let the boys live. As reward for the midwives' conduct, the verse states that God made houses for them. Now, this entire story appears simple and straightforward. What's a simple and straightforward? There's two women, Shifra, Pua. They didn't listen to Pharaoh, and God built them homes. God gave them each big families. Five-year-olds can understand that very nicely, right? Yet Rashi sees it necessary to comment regarding the Hebrew midwives and tell us that Shifra and Pua weren't their actual names. No, it's professional names. It's not really Shifra and Pua. Rashi writes that Shifra is actually Yocheved. And she is called Shifra because she would improve Mishaper, the newborns, by cleaning them and straightening out their limbs. Pua is actually Miriam. Rashi continues, and was called Pua because she would coo Pua to the babies and soothe them when they cried. What compelled Rashi to depart from the literal meaning of the verse that the midwives were named Shifra and Pua and explain that these are only descriptive titles, while their actual names were Yecheved and Miriam? Fair question, huh? <laughs> What's Rashi doing? The whole idea was that Pharaoh was trying to avoid the delivery from being born. Yeah. No, just thinking because you're heaven and Miriam. Pharaoh doesn't know that. Okay, so so I just want to clarify something. I want to clarify something. The fact that Shifra and Pua are Yecheved and Miriam is not something that Rashi discovered himself or that Rashi was the first one to teach us. This piece of information is communicated to us in the Talmud. All right? So any Talmudic scholar already knows, already knows this story. Rashi is not making anything up. Rashi didn't have some type of communication from heaven that it was not true from Pua, it was Yecheved and Miriam. So it's already been an accepted fact in Judaism, that Shifra and Pua is Yecheved and Miriam. Now, I got news for you. There's plenty, there's so much of uh, biblical commentary that's in the Talmud that is not quoted by Rashi. Why is that? Because Rashi is not there to give us the entire story. What's Rashi there for? Rashi is there to teach the Torah to the five. Remember this. The Talmud is not for the five. The Talmud is for the 15-year-old. If you look in the, in the Perkei Avot, in the Mishnah it says, when you're five, you start to learn Bible, Mikra, start to learn the Chumash. When you're 10, you start to learn the Mishnah. When you're 15, you start to learn the Talmud, right? So whatever's in the Talmud is relevant for the 15 and up to know. Not necessarily for the five-year-old. Rashi is only there to bring the information that is necessary for the five-year-old 
to understand what he's reading, to understand the Torah. Rashi is not there to give the entire story. Okay? Based on this premise, the Rebbe is bothered by the fact that Rashi does not allow the five-year-old to read the verse and say, hey, there were these two women, Shifra Pua, and they were the midwives. Pharaoh tried to convince Shifra and Pua to kill the baby boys. They didn't listen. In response, God allowed, God built them homes, right? What is that? So let's go, let's go to you on page seven. A similar question can be asked about the next Rashi. Rashi explains that God made houses for them. And one of the houses, it refers to the houses of priesthood, Levites and royalty that later arose from their descendants. Now, houses of priesthood and Levites and, and royalty, that can only be Yecheved and Miriam, right? However, but what compels Rashi to interpret this way? And by the way, that we also know from the Talmud. Talmud says this very clearly. Talmud attracted Saita, says this whole story. It would appear more straightforward to explain houses as families, as in the verse, each man in his house, which means family. And so what's the literal and simple straightforward translation of this story? The reward would be that instead of being punished by Pharaoh, they merited to establish Jewish families. Done. This is an alternative reading of the verses, which seems to be more literal. and seems to be quite uh, satisfactory for a five-year-old. Right? When I'll turn 15, I'll open up a Talmud, tracted Saita. Ah, oh, Shifra and Pua wasn't the real name. It was Echeved and Miriam. He's not going to come with a complaint to say, hey, teacher, why didn't you tell me it was Echeved and Miriam? But it's not, a, not everything you have to know right away at five. You'll discover it at 15. Right? So th- th- this, is what's, this is what's bothering. Th- this is the question that Rabbi has on this Rashi. What's missing in the narrative for the, in the five-year-old mind that compels Rashi to number one, tell us that when the Torah says Shifra and Pua, it's not really Shifra and Pua. And that when the Torah says he built for them houses, it doesn't mean families, which is more the literal translation of houses in this context. And we have, I say, we have um, precedent for it in this Parsha. In the beginning of Exodus, look at source number two. These are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each man, Ubeisoi. Beisoi means his house. Each man in his household, his descendants. Right? So in this parsha, literally verses beforehand, the word bait means family. The five-year-old is going to simply translate the reward that God gave to these two midwives is that instead of being punished by Pharaoh, not only did they survive, they established large Jewish families. That's it. Are you bothered by the question yet, or do I have to convince you some more? <laughs> anyway. Fair question, right? In other words, it's not a question on the parasha. A question on Rashi. Why is Rashi? In other words, it's not a question, how does Rashi know it was Yechevet and Miriam? How does Rashi know that it means uh, priesthood and, and royalty? No, no, no. This is an established fact that's communicated to us in the Talmud. It's all good. question is, why is this relevant to the five-year-old? Why does the five-year-old have to know this information? You know the term need-to-know basis? Right? At five years old, you don't need to know this. So move on. Why are we, uh, why are we confusing the child, so to speak? <laughs> now the Rebbe is going to flip this whole thing on its head and say, if you don't say this, you're going to confuse the child even more. The answer is as follows. 
Page 8. When the five-year-old student reads the verse, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, a simple question comes to his mind. In the previous verses, we read that the children of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and increased and became very, very strong. Rashi explains there that the women would give birth to six tuplets, six babies every time. If so, how could there be only two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua? There's a problem here. <laughs> two midwives? Only two midwives for all of the Jewish women? What's going on? Oh, hold on. Wait. You're ready? You're ready to say? Yeah, very good. Very good. Good. You're on to something, Mark. How could only two midwives handle the enormous number of births of the Jewish people who were fruitful and swarmed? This is all the more difficult to comprehend considering that they would give birth to six tuplets. One midwife wouldn't be enough to handle such a birth, and at least two midwives would have been needed for each birth. Right? So like, what? two midwives, that's it? For the entire Jewish nation? <clears throat> when the beginner student continues and studies the following verse, he has a question in the other direction. Pharaoh called the Hebrew midwives and rebuked them for not implementing his decree. Why have you done this? Why have you allowed the boys to live? And what did the midwives answer him? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They have the skills of a midwife. Or they are like animals who don't need a midwife. And before the midwife has even arrived, they've already given birth. Yeah, so what's the question now? This raises a different question. Since the Hebrew women have the skills of a midwife, or alternatively, they don't need a midwife at all, and they give birth before the midwife even arrives... Who gave Shifra and Pua their job? No, who needs them? Right? Who needs them? Why then was there a need for any Hebrew midwives as well? And how do we know that they had already made a career for themselves? They had professional names. <laughs> they weren't just a Chavid and Miriam. They were Shifra and Pua. Well, so first of all, when Pharaoh called them in, that means they had already established a career for themselves. Right. But one second. Huh? Who needs them? <laughs> it's not that, oh, because we don't need a midwife, two of them are enough. In other words, if you need a midwife, you... now this was happening for a while, already, right? The midwife's response must certainly have been factually accurate because Pharaoh could have investigated the matter. We see the Egyptians' investigative abilities later regarding Yocheva's own pregnancy, right? As we mentioned earlier, they were able to figure out, they knew exactly when she was expected to give birth. That the Egyptians counted nine months and came to check if she had given birth. As a rule, people don't lie about a matter that can't be checked. They're going to go and tell Pharaoh, oh, no, there are any midwives. How hard is it for Pharaoh to figure out if that's true or not? It's the easiest thing in the world to figure out, right? <laughs> a Hebrew woman is giving birth every day, every, you know, every few minutes, there's another Hebrew woman giving birth. They could send in Egyptian uh, observers. And they could see what's going on, right? So we got like these two opposite questions. Number one, two midwives for the entire Jewish nation. That's yeah, that's yeah. multiplying. That's an obvious question, right? Yeah. The opposite question is, if we don't need midwives, who needs two of them? Let them get a better job. They said they don't need help. The fact is, they don't need help. And Pharaoh accepted it. And Pharaoh was a tough cookie. 
Pharaoh was like Hitler, Stalin, all wrapped up in one, right? They weren't easy guys. Are you confused, guys? The father was confused. The father was like, I don't understand. First of all, two for so many. Second of all, who needs these two if you don't need any of them? Yeah. Very good. So Rashi has to address this question. And by the way, by now, you're never going to be able to unsee this question. <laughs> Every time you're going to read this verse, I understand. Oh, what is this? Two for so many. And if we don't need any, why do we need two? On the one hand, two is too little. On the one hand, two is too, too many. The simple answer can be given. There was, we're on page 10. There was no practical need for Hebrew midwives as the Jewish women would give birth without them. That's a fact. Technically speaking, to give birth, to have healthy babies, they didn't need a midwife. Nevertheless, they served the role of calming and reassuring the Jewish women with the knowledge if the need arises for a midwife, there are Hebrew midwives available. <laughs> a whole new thing. You know, there's this concept called this is a concept in, in Torah called paspasaloi, having bread in your satchel, having bread in your basket. It's the idea. When a person decides, you have two people that are hungry. One of them has no bread. The other one has bread in his basket. Who's hungrier? The one who doesn't have bread. The one who doesn't have bread is hungrier. The one who has bread knows I have bread if I so all of a sudden, this hunger is kind of still. He can handle it. But if he has no bread at all, oh, you, 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 it's terrible. So what's the idea here? Naturally speaking, a woman who's giving birth needs to have a midwife. Something amazing was happening over there. And they didn't need midwives. And they, and they saw that. They, they saw that we're giving birth and everything was going fine. However, not to have any midwife to call them all the night to come, that's a, a little bit too much. So... Yecheved and Miriam, so, so, so I'm sorry, before we get to Yecheved and Miriam, so therefore, there was the Shifra and Pua. There was the Shifra and Pua team, the midwife team. The, all the Jewish people knew. If you need a midwife, you can call these two women. They're going to be the midwives. Did they ever have to call them? Practically speaking, no. Practically speaking, by the time they would arrive, everything was fine. But knowing that Shifra and Pua were available, that was enough. However, this is not enough. Though. However, considering that there was an inordinate amount of births and extraordinary births of sextuplets, two midwives shouldn't have sufficed to reassure the Jewish women. <laughs> yeah, we, ha we have a midwife team available for the millions of women. Two women, Shifra and Pua. It must be. So, and it, so the five-year-old is not accepting this yet. And I'm saying the, the five-year-old is not happy. He's not... He's not uh, He's, 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 he's not happy with this explanation. So therefore, it must be that the Hebrew midwives weren't just regular women, but extraordinarily righteous. Oh, it wasn't just a midwife team. We're talking here about a team of tzitkoniyos, of righteous women. Then, knowing that they had such exceptional midwives, the Jewish women could be reassured. They knew that that team that was available to come to any birth was of the highest caliber possible, not in skill, midwifing skills, birthing skills. 
but that they were the biggest righteous, the biggest sitkaniyas, the greatest righteous women of that generation were men. Thus, a straightforward reading of the verses bears out that the Hebrew midwives were exceptionally righteous people. But we still don't know who they are. It can't be that the midwives were actually women named Shifra and Pua because we don't know of any righteous women by those names. In other words, if they were so exceptionally righteous, they must be famous. And we don't know of any famous Shifra and Puas. Therefore, Rashi relies on the tradition transmitted, transmitted in the Medrash, which is recorded in the Talmud, that the midwives were Yecheved and Miriam, who were called Shifra and Pua as a description of their actions. In other words, Rashi, he must tell us that it's Yecheved and Miriam, and I have to explain, so why were they called Shifra and Pua? Why couldn't the Torah just say Yecheved and Miriam? And the answer is because they had professional names. Their professional names were Shifra and Pua. What was that? Right, over here we're saying that they had a name, Yechevet, but she was known as Shifra. And uh, yeah, Rashi does this because it is untenable to explain that these were regular women named Shifra and Pua, as the midwives must have been exceptionally righteous women. Fine? Okay. Does Rashi make sense now? I guess. In other words, did Rashi satisfy the five-year-old now? Again, let's review this for a moment. The five-year-old, we're not five. Halavai, we were this five-year-old. Halavai, if only, if only we were reading the Torah with such careful analysis as this five-year-old child. Okay, so now we know, in other words, what Rashi is telling us is there is no other way to understand this story literally. In other words, reading this in a way that tells us that there was Shifra and Pua, literally speaking, that there were two women named Shifra and Pua, they had no other names, and there were just this midwife team that's okay. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, There's a little more words. Hey, Shifra Pua, you know, yeah. No, it wasn't just random Shifra and Pua. We're talking over here about the two highest level righteous women in Egypt, right? In, in, in the Jewish nation then. In other words, what the Rebbe is telling us is like this. Rashi is not an alternative reading of the parsha. This is the only, in other words, this is the basic way of reading the parsha. You can't translate this as anything else other than Yechavid and Miriam because then the words wouldn't make sense. The narrative doesn't fit. Two midwives for millions of women, and if you don't need midwives, who needs these two, right? So, but if it's Yechavid and Miriam. And the function of these midwives is to reassure the women and to ensure that the women, you know, that they have they have the ability to call the midwife and not just any midwife, but they have the two greatest righteous women of the generation at their at their call. Okay, now it's starting to make sense. Now the whole narrative is starting to make sense. And now it makes sense that Pharaoh knew that there were midwives by the Jewish people, and he was going to try to I say use them as, as a way to uh, to do his dirty work. So I have one thing left, and that is with regard to the reward. How did God, so Rashi says, how did God reward the midwives? He, cre he made homes for them. He made houses for them. Now, the literal meaning of house means he, he gave them families. 
Rashi says, no, not just any old family. He made them the matriarchs of royal families and Levite and priestly families. Why do you have to say that? Why can we just say they weren't killed by Pharaoh and they had families? In conclusion, Rashi explains that the reward that the Hebrew midwives received was houses of the priesthood, Levites, and royalty. Rashi can't explain that God made houses for them means simply that they established families. This wouldn't be an appropriate reward for the actions of the midwives for saving the male babies. Raising a family was a natural part of life for all Jews, and at that time, it was even natural to give birth to sextuplets. We're going to get into a very interesting concept here. That is like this. How does God reward? There is a method. There's a methodology to God rewarding us. And we'll see soon when we go to the sources. God rewards measure for measure. You know, it also works on the opposite side. When God punishes, God also punishes measure for measure, right? Because the Egyptians drowned the baby boys. So ultimately they were drowned in the in the in, in the in the sea. Remember, it goes back and forth. But also when it comes to reward, when you do a mitzvah, God rewards you, but in the same measure as that mitzvah. Now, what, what did the midwives do? The midwives, they uh, single-handedly saved the entire Jewish nation. They caused for an entire next generation of Jews to be born. Okay? That's huge. That's a huge deal. Now, you're going to say, how did God reward them? Oh, they had families. Everyone was having babies in those days. Everyone was having families. And huge families. What? Oh, one second. Well, oh, one second. Yeah, yeah. But, but to say that just they had families... That's not a that's not a reward. Everyone's having families, right? It can't be suggested that raising a family was a special reward for the midwives because it was expected that Pharaoh would punish them and deny them this possibility. As arguments say, since they bucked Pharaoh's command, since they ignored him, so Pharaoh was going to punish them and they would die without having families. God saved them and gave them a big family. You can't say that. Why? Because as explained, Pharaoh had accepted the explanation given by the midwives that the Hebrew women are unique and give birth without assistance. So there was no reason for him to punish them. In other words, they weren't really in danger. They had a good answer. Pharaoh accepted their answer. It was confirmed, and that's that. They're off the hook. It did take self-sacrifice on the part, right? Not to be intimidated by Pharaoh, but at the end of the day, they had a way to get out of it, right? So therefore, just to say that, oh, they had, they had a big family, that's not a real reward. That's not measure for measure. Rashi is therefore compelled to explain that the reward of God-made houses for them refers to houses of the priesthood, Levites, and royalty. They didn't just give birth to any old family. Just like they saved an entire, they, they in other words, with their sacrifice, they brought a new generation of Jews to the world. They created a whole new nation of Jews. So they merited that their families were the beginnings of like new nations within the Jewish people. The priestly family. It's a whole nation. The Koyanim is a nation within a nation. You have the Davidic dynasty. These are the kings. This is a whole new nation. Now that's a reward. That is measure for measure. Rashi brings support for this interpretation from another verse in the Torah where a dynasty is referred to as a house. Solomon built the two houses, the temple of the Lord and the king's house. Rashi then specifies that the priestly and Levite families descended from Kecheved and the royal family 
descended from Miriam, as explained in Tractate Saita. Okay, so, so in other words, beforehand, we were basically saying Rashi is just giving way too much information, over information overload, overload right? Why do we have to know to heaven and Miriam? And uh, why do we have to know what the reward was, right? And then now, we said, no, 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 there is no other way to understand the story if it's not Yecheved and Miriam. And if the reward is not the reward of the fact that they are building, or that, that they merited, that their families became these huge, important nations within the nation. Okay? Let's just read through Source 3. I think it's a very fascinating concept that, that uh, the Talmud shares with us God's methodology of how he rewards. So the tractate Zaita, the same is so with regard to good deeds. Miriam waited for Moses for one hour. In this week's parish, we learned that after Moses was born, and three months later, his mother couldn't keep him in the house, so she put him on the Nile. Miriam went out to watch over her brother, to watch, to watch Moses. No one asked her to do it. No one told her to do it. But she went on her own accord to go, and she spent a certain amount of time to watch Moses. Miriam waited for Moses for one hour, as it is stated, and his, stood, as it, at, and his sister stood at a distance. Therefore, 80 years later, 80 years later, therefore, the Jewish people delayed themselves in the desert for seven days for her. When the Jewish people left Egypt, it is about 81 years. So 80 years later, when Moses was 80, the Jewish people left Egypt. And then they were in the desert for about a year. And then they were about to go into the land of Israel. And that when they, when they journeyed from Sinai towards the land of Israel, a lot of stuff happened. And ultimately, they, they got stuck for 40 years. One of the things that happened was that Miriam spoke about Moses. Miriam spoke to Aaron, it was Lashon Hara, it was gossip, and she was punished and she became a, a, a Mitzarat. She got the, the miraculous leprosy. A Mitzarat, someone who has this leprosy is not allowed to be within the confines of the Jewish camp, had to be outside of the camp. And she was a, she, she was a Mitzarat for seven days. She was outside of the camp. So even though the Jewish people had an itinerary to get to the land of Israel right away, they waited for her because it wouldn't be uh, dignified for Miriam to travel with them outside of the camp. So because she had to be outside of the camp, everyone waited for her. That was a reward that was measured for measure with the fact that she waited for Moses. So all of the people waited for her. Joseph. Joseph merited to bury his father. And last week's parish we learned that Joseph was the one. It was only because of Joseph that they were able to go and bring Yaakov to Maris and Machpelah to Israel and bury him in Hebron. Joseph merited to bury his father, and there was none among his brothers greater than he, right? He was the greatest person of that generation. He was the king, as it is stated, and Joseph went up to bury his father, and there went up with him with chariots and horsemen. The whole, the whole, how do you say, the royal, the whole entourage was there because of Yosef. In turn, who buried Yosef? No one had a greater burial than Yosef, as Moses himself was personally involved in transporting his coffin. It's a whole fascinating story for itself. But before the Jewish people left Egypt, Moses himself searched for Yosef, discovered Yosef, and Yosef's coffin was kept in Moshe's, uh, how do you say, proximity. <laughs> he never lost sight of Yosef's coffin. The tribe of Yosef, they didn't care, take care of it. Moses himself, the greatest of all the Jewish people, he was the one that took care of Yosef. He didn't ultimately bury Yosef because he didn't go into the land of Israel. But for 40 years, you know, Yosef had a 40-year uh, funeral procession all the way to, to Israel. And who was in charge of it? Meshach Rabbeinu. Moses merited to be involved in the transportation of Joseph's bones. 
and there was none among the Jewish people greater than he. As it is stated that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. No one had a greater burial. So, so he did a big mitzvah, right? He took care of Yosef. He took care of Yosef's burial, Yosef's funeral, bringing him to Israel. And he was the greatest. So how is he going to be repaid back? Who's going to bury Moses? Who buried Moses and then? God. Hashem, right? Hashem did, right? <laughs> did anyone have a better, a better Hebra Kedisha involved in their burial? This is this is the bit. It's measure for measure. Since Maisha Rabbeinu was the greatest Jew to take care of Yosef, so therefore he merited that the greatest entity took care of Maisha Rabbeinu, right? Uh, and, uh, so no one had a greater burial than Moses, as God himself performed this burial, as it is stated, and he, God, buried him in the valley. Uh, not only, let's continue here, not only with regard to Moses did the sages say this, but also with regard to all the righteous individuals, as it is stated, the righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall gather you in. Uh, and, the, and the Talmud says, in continuation to this, the Talmud says, it was because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. What is the houses? Rav and Shmuel disagree. One says that God made the houses of the priesthood and the Levites descend from the midwives. One says that God made the houses of royalty descend from them. Truth is that both of them are right. But whatever. You have, you have a good question. Anyway, but the truth is that both of them are right, that, that the Levites came from them and the houses of royalty of the Davidic kingdom came from them. And so this is the measure for measure because the midwives, through their self-sacrifice, they caused that a new generation of Jews should come to the world. They basically single-handedly caused for a new nation of Jews to come to the world. So therefore they merited to bring two distinct, beautiful, and impactful nations within the nation of the Jewish people. Okay, let's continue with source number four. Very fascinating concept here. To underscore the advantage of this explanation, Rashi references tractate soita. Okay, here's a very interesting concept. Uh, Rashi usually, since he's talking to the five-year-old, right? He doesn't bring his sources. The five-year-old never heard of the sources, right? However, there are times where Rashi does bring his source, either from the Talmud or from the Medrash. All that depends on. Now, the child himself is not going to follow that because the child didn't learn Talmud yet. But the child is learning with a teacher. The teacher learned the Talmud. So the teacher is going to kind of complement Rashi's um, explanation to the five-year-old with the fact that Rashi is going to send the teacher off to the source and tell him, look at the source, and when you'll see it in the context of the source, this explanation is going to make more sense. So now the Rebbe is like diving deeper here. He says, why does Rashi quote Tractate Saita, right? If, if you look on page... Ooh, where are we? Um, what? On page five, where we quoted the Rashi about the reward, he made houses for them. So he brings that there was the houses of the Levites and the kings. And he ends off, as is stated in Tractate Soita. Why does Rashi have to bring that? The five-year-old doesn't, know, doesn't even know how to deal with that reference yet. Right? The Rebbe explains, here's the advantage of sending us to the context in Tractate Soita. Because... This piece of information that we're talking about, the Levites and the royal family, fine, it's a good piece of information. Why do you have to read it in the context that it is taught in Tractate Soita? The relevant Talmudic source there directly follows a discussion of the Mishnah's teaching. People are measured with the same measure that they use. 
The Talmudic discussion includes examples of rewards and punishments that correlate with every detail of the person's conduct. This highlights the advantage of the interpretation that houses refers to the priestly Levite and royal dynasties. This interpretation doesn't only express the greatness of the reward, it also shows how the reward was measure for measure, corresponding to the actions of the midwives in every detail. What does that mean? By allowing the male babies to live, the midwives didn't only help establish Jewish families. They helped build most, if not all, of the generation of the Exodus, the ancestors of the Jewish people of all subsequent generations. The midwives therefore received a reward that was precisely measure for measure. Not only did they personally raise families or bear children who were priests, Levites, and kings, they merited to establish houses of priesthood, Levites, and royalty. It's not just that, oh, one of their descendants became a priest. One of their descendants became a king. I don't know. They became the dynasties. They became the houses of priesthood and of the Levites. These special dynasties exist within the Jewish people for all time. Until today, you have Koyanim. Until today, you have people that could that, that trace directly back to King David. In other words, just like Yecheved and Miriam through their self-sacrifice, they caused that we should be here to tell the story. They caused that the Jews should be here today. So they merited that their legacy is here today. It's not just that they're in the history books. There are people alive today that say my great-great-grandmother is Echeved. My great-great-grandmother is Miriam. That's the measure for measure. Uh, just uh, I'll end up with a cute story. I heard this from, uh, from Carlos. Carlos said that he was once approached by a guy who was trying to convince him the, about, the, about the Bible. Basically, he had some uh, bad ideas in his mind. So what's your connection to the Bible? So Carlos said, you know, Aaron, the high priest, he's my great-grandpa. Yeah. We have people here today that could say, we come from Yecheved, we come from Miriam. This is the way God rewards for the self-sacrifice and for the commitment and for, um, and for the mitzvahs that we do. And so I, I think that the takeaway from here is, is the fact that we are here as a nation, the fact that the Jewish people survived that, that terrible time period and, and, and survived to be released and to be redeemed from Egypt was all due to the self-sacrifice of these two women, of Yecheved and Miriam, which basically tells us that all of Judaism depends on who? The Nashim Tzitkani is on the, on the righteous women and in their merit, just like we, we merited to have a generation of Jews that were redeemed then, we're going to have a generation of Jews that will be redeemed, the coming of Mashiach. May it happen very, very soon. Thank you all for joining us.